0: This is chapter 14 of The War and Waste Paradox by Leonard Bertain, read by Leonard Bertain, continuing from chapter 14, part 1. Does anyone have any input here? Can the 80-20 rule be applied to other problems, and if so, how? Roland immediately jumped in. You know, 80% of my problems come from 20% of my customers. I know that for sure. And 80% of my revenues comes from 20% of my customers. And 80% of my late shipments are caused by 20% of the trucking companies that we use. I was just looking at some of those numbers. I see 78% of my late shipments were caused by 16% of the trucking company. I guess that's the 78-16 rule. Everyone laughed at Buck's humor and then conversation developed around the many applications of this principle. It was really interesting how it worked. Dr. Elby concluded, the most interesting consequence of the eighty-twenty rule is really is that it allows you to spend a little money, get rid of some of the problem, and after several months, a new variation of the problem comes up, but it is a different problem, and you didn't spend that additional 80% to get there. In essence, what this does is get you to put out only as much money as is needed to stop the bleeding, because we know other problems will arise that require the bigger investment. Doctor Elby went back to the center of the whiteboard and turned to the class. Do you really want me to mess with your minds more than I already have? Buck was feeling his oats and fired back, "Sock it to me, Doc. Sock it to me, Doctor Elby." Okay, Buck, I will. Let's look at a way that we really get leverage. How about the 2080 rule of the or 2080 rule of the 2080 rule? That gives us 464. We made it 675 to make a point, or 567 to make a point. Here's what I want to show you guys, Buck. What do you get when you divide 20 into 80? He responded quickly. Four. Then Dr. LB asked, what do you get when you divide five into sixty-seven? Buck responded, a little over 13. Good guy, Buck. So when we look at the leverage here, we get four times the benefit to cost ratio with the 2080 rule versus the 13 with the 567 rule. What does this tell you? Bonnie raised her hand hesitantly, and Dr. Albee acknowledged her. I think it says we should be using the 567 rule versus the twenty eighty rule because it gives us better leverage, as you say. In other words, we should be able to see 5% of our customers generating 67% of our revenue. Is that right? You're right on. And where it really becomes useful in these classes is that it means you don't have to check out as many customers to find out where you should spend your time. For example, if you were trying to find out which products are giving you the best leverage in sales you only need to check out 5% of the products. You have about 100 products or so, and 5% of them would be 5 products, right? So if I ask Roland if that's true, would it be true, Roland? he turned to Roland, who was obviously trying to figure this out in his head. Yes, Dr. Elby, the top 5 products account for 71% of our sales. Like Buck said, that would make this the five seventy one rule. I get it at that point. Mr. Grimes jumped in, Dr. Elby, you can't be serious here. I know the eighty twenty rule. I've known it for forty years, but I've never heard of the five sixty seven rule. Why not? It turns out that it was a surprise to me as well. When we started during the war on waste, we don't didn't always have a lot of time. So when a team was trying to collect numbers, On a particular problem, I would tell them to go, oh, just go collect 5% of the numbers and see where that leads us instead of the 20%, and let's see what we have. And they always came back with numbers over 60%. In the war on waste, we want speed to get the problem exposed. And as it turns out, 5% was right on. So that is how the 567 rule got started. We started that act, and then we looked at whether it was real and took a look at the 2080 on the 2080 and ended with the 464, and the rest is history. So to speed up the projects and reduce the amount of information you need to collect, use the 567 rule. I don't know about you guys, Dr. Side, but that does it for me today. For me, the class ended too soon that day. I had things I wanted to discuss, but we ran out of time. I jotted down some notes so I could remember and went out to work. At break time, Patty came over to Billy and me. She said that if we could meet with her team that afternoon, they would show us some good ideas about the new valve assembly. That afternoon, we all met in a classroom after work. As we walked in, Tony was in a heated discussion with one of his teammates. We're putting in overtime, he said. We're not getting paid for. When we were seated, Tony said, Kelly brought up a problem that I'm sure has crossed all of your minds. She was wondering about all the time that the team is putting in after work. She asked whether we were going to get paid for it. I don't think we ought to ask for any overtime pay, but again, we are working overtime. Grimes is spending a lot of money to provide this training and keep the plant in operation. As most of you know, I have enough years in so that I could retire today, so it really doesn't matter to me if this plant stays open or not. I'll still get my pension. But you young people have a real stake in this plant. I'll tell you this Mike was right when he said we shouldn't complain about the little things. So, what if we invest a few hours we're not paid for? What you're doing is reinvesting in our future. You're going to be paid a hundredfold in job security. And unless we do this, we won't probably have any jobs. Just get off the bullshit and get with it, Kelly. Kelly didn't have much to say after that. Man, I couldn't believe the change in Tony's attitude. Holy cow. That afternoon, while we were kicking around the idea of a dedicated cell, we ran into another brick wall. The Acme and the XS machines didn't use the same vice system. The process we were considering would entail moving parts in process from one machine to another, would be a set-up nightmare to get the required vices in the same relative position on both machines. The only thing we could come up with that was any meaningful way was to dedicate an ACME 1000 to the cell in addition to the XS2040, but we knew that management would never go for idling two machines. We were almost ready to give up on the idea. As we began the discussion, we mentioned our problem to the other members of the team, and Bonnie asked if the machines used the same computer controller. We told her that they did, and she said, I may have a solution for this problem. Let me check something out. The next morning, I found Bonnie, Tony, and Jim already in the classroom. Tony said to me, come here and check this out. When I joined them, I saw they were all looking at a machining magazine. I caught the tail end of Bonnie's explanation. So, if we work the XY axis from the same point on both machines, we could just change the base plate that has the vices already mounted. I looked at the magazine ad. It was, instant, it was instantly clear to me that Bonnie was on to a solution. She had found something called the ball lock plate system. Phil had already mentioned a ball lock, but this would allow us to mount the visors on the base plate, and then we could move the base plate from the XS to the Acme machine without having to set up the visors again. It looked like once the machine was set up to accept the ball lock system, we could change the base plates in less than a minute. Bonnie said, I haven't checked the actual price of the system, but I talked with my dad over the weekend, and he thought the thought the cost would be less than $500 per machine. I asked Bonnie, how do you know about all this kind of stuff? Bonnie said, my dad was an engineer for years in Detroit. I grew up around this stuff. When I originally applied here, it was for a design job. I have a degree in mechanical engineering, but they didn't have any openings in engineering, but they offered me the job in sales, so I took it. Bonnie was an engineer. Boy, that was a shocker. In class that day, we talked about the ball lock system once more. It was the solution after all, and we all knew it. When Phil originally mentioned it, we didn't think of using it in this way. Phil said, I think this ball lock system will work pretty well for you guys. Like I said before, we're great believers in low-tech solutions. Based on my experience in machining, I'm a great believer in jigs or fixtures to hold a product in a fixed position. Every new setup is an opportunity to make your business more efficient. You can build a jig to do one operation. Let each jig be dedicated to a specific job. That way you can have the setup crew prepare each job ahead of time. You never wait for equipment that is tied up in another job. You almost always see the light bulb go on in Gus's head. And he realized that he could build a separate set of jigs and fixtures for every job his crew would be responsible for them, and setup would definitely be affected in a positive way. And boy, was Gus obviously excited. Some insights from Chapter 14. Historically, the 80-20 rule was the greatest tool in our bags of tricks before we discovered the 567 rule. The eighty-twenty rule tells us that 80% of revenues comes from 20% of the customers, or 80% of customer problems come from 20% of the customers. Hopefully they aren't the same as the customers generating 80% of the revenues, and so forth. I remember learning about this several years ago. I think I learned it just from my dad. Just before my dad, I had a chance to visit him alone in one weekend. We talked about a lot of things, and I remember telling him that he taught me a valuable lesson in the 80-20 rule. He was surprised for two reasons. One, that I would ever admit that I'd learned anything from him and two, he had never heard of the eighty-twenty rule. I said that I learned it the hard way. I always su- assumed when I needed a hundred dollars to fix a piece of, of equipment, he would only give me 20, and there would be some logic to his method. He always got about 80% of the problem solved by spending 20% of the cost. We both got a laugh out of that. If my dad were still alive, I'd now tell him about the 567 rule, and how it had its genesis in his stingy approach to spending on machines. And we would probably laugh about that, too. At least I would. In this chapter, we find Bonnie has some tribal knowledge that is clearly untapped. When challenged with a problem, she brings up her credentials and contributes to a great idea. It represents another example of unused tribal knowledge. It is present in the company the minute that bonnie joint, but then it sits untapped. When we get a handle on corporate skills, a lot of people do not use those unused skills out of the bag for any number of reasons. As we do in the War on Waste projects, we love to find situations like this. On that issue alone, as a facilitator, I get great joy out of finding the bonnies and their unused skills. As a corollary to the major war on waste paradox, consider this. Why is it that companies care more about their people than they do about what they know? I call these little gems war on waste paradox corollaries. That's the end of chapter 14. Looking forward to seeing you, presenting to you in chapter 15. Thank you very much.